Portions of the following podcast have been redacted. We apologize for any inconvenience. The step that needs to take place between the decision to start something and actually being able to declare something as having started is often more difficult to identify than one might think. That is, unless money is involved, in which case the step is usually the point in which money begins changing hands. But when things are being done on a volunteer basis, it's difficult. Because, without money, what is there to lord over people's heads when they don't show up? Shame? You can't say this is in violation of contract because there isn't a contract. Because the decision to start the thing was made in a bar on a Sunday night in an effort to distract from the fact that a week full of tedious, banal work lies directly, inescapably, horribly ahead. Of course, the thing doesn't really distract from the benign tediousness that is most of adult life, but it's nonetheless a nice thing to think about, until one stops to consider the exceptional amount of time and energy that said thing will take, and begins to wonder if there isn't some sort of technicality that will relieve them of all the responsibilities that they, just moments ago, agreed to with gusto. Buyer's remorse can be cruel, especially when there's no money involved. Anyway, this is Bug Spray. The bar that Jim, Terry, Bridget, and Rhonda sat in was unfortunately called Piglet's Hole, and it was not a Sunday night, but a Tuesday, which probably gives you a great idea as to how the week was going. Terry, the poet, and therefore self-proclaimed group alcoholic, was listing off things they should do, you know, like in general. The list had not been commissioned, Terry had come up with the idea on his own, but the other three were listening to him because they generally liked him and as such nodded and smiled, and peppered in the occasional "Uh uh-huh and sure, in an effort to preserve what little bit of self-worth Terry still had. Poets are probably great for society, but man, are they ever exhausting. You know, as people. Anyway, here is a small bit of the list. Go to the moon. Go to Saturn. Go to Frederick, Maryland. Go to Cleveland, Ohio. Start a rock band called Broomstick. Start an arts collective that focuses on adapting the complete works of Richard and Florence Atwater into a 30-second performance art piece to be performed once in the lobby of Trump Tower. Become immune to loneliness. Everyone agreed that Broomstick was a dumb name for a band. But they also agreed that, perhaps, the idea of forming a band was not dumb. And so they immediately told Terry that enough was enough. That's enough, Terry. And began to discuss who would play what, and what kind of music they would play, and whose uncle that lived in Wayne, New Jersey had a garage that probably also had an old PA system in it. Never touching on why said uncle had an old PA system, and what that said about said uncle's own set of broken dreams, and general regrets. 
and also what model of early 90s Ford van they would buy to tour the Northeast. They settled on the Aerostar because of its removable middle bench. With that out of the way, other decisions were made, and more rail alcohol consumed, so that when they stood outside Piglet's Hole in the freezing cold, each independently trying to figure out how to end the conversation that really wanted to keep going and going, Broomstick, okay, so they hadn't been able to figure out that one, had a drummer, bassist, two guitars, and a singer. Oh yeah, and a logo. A logo that Terry had sketched out on a Piglet's Hole coaster. But again, they'd all agreed that Broomstick was a working title because it was a stupid name for a band. And so, you know, whatever. Terry was brimming with self-worth. So that was good. Eventually, good nights were wished, and everyone went on their merry, if slightly already headachy, ways. And then days passed, and then weeks, and then months. Every so often, the band was brought up, but mostly as in the context of, hey, let's never do that again, right? Jim, Terry, Bridget, and Rhonda woke up the morning after broomsticks, or whatever, Inception, with headaches that had grown in alarms from a single Yankee candle to the entire fucking city of Los Angeles. To add insult to injury, through the throbbing, stupid pounding in their heads, came the inescapable thought that they had done something terribly embarrassing that night at Piglet's Hole, even if they could not remember quite what it was that they had done. It was probably nothing, but in this modern age where everyone walks around with a fucking camera that can also make phone calls, you can never be 100% sure. The kind of thing that can eat away at you when you wake up at 3.45 in the morning and decide that that's an appropriate time to take stock of your life. Most would have given the whole situation one look and decided that maybe Broomstick, or whatever it was going to be called, was not to be. Let sleeping dogs lie and get on with life. Terry Carson, however, is not most, or even some, and is also absolutely horrendous when it comes to picking up on social cues. And so he practiced daily looking cool in front of a full-length mirror he had also paid too much money for at a local thrift shop. Sure, he also on occasion wrote songs and built a website, but in front of the mirror was where he spent most of his free time. His mantra, stage presence, poise, animal magnetism, Tony Robbins. At no point did it occur to him that most of his rock idols probably never needed to practice their stage presences or their poise. This isn't to say that Terry spent a great deal of time thinking about any of it. Terry really doesn't think, and more just sort of is. The lucky bastard. With the help of the popular website YouTube, Terry studied rockers like Billy Joe Armstrong, and Dexter Holland, Dan Wilson, and Jacob Dylan. For reasons even he was unclear on, and never examined any closer, he was especially taken with the way that Mr. Armstrong's nose seemed to get caught on the microphone, which, Terry supposed, probably led to his uniquely nasal way of singing. But enough about that. We can all sit in the back of my mom's Honda Odyssey and listen to Trey later. It was Bridget who first had the thought of pulling Terry aside and letting him know explicitly what she and the other two had been trying to implicitly impart for months. Specifically, they weren't that interested in being part of the band. 
None of them were musical, or even what could be considered close to decent at their instruments. And in any case, the likelihood of Broomstick, or whatever it was going to be called, ever achieving enough success to even think about needing a Ford Era start a tour in, was so slim that when asked to calculate it, Nate Silver, remember him? Never actually got back to anyone here with a number. But it's real small, trust me. Rhonda came the closest to telling Terry the truth, but although she was afforded several opportunities to do so, the time never seemed quite right, and so one cloudy Saturday morning in early February, Broomstick, or whatever they were going to eventually call themselves, met in Jim's Bushwick apartment for their first band practice. It seemed that Jim, Bridget, and Rhonda had discovered what many college, video sketch comedy troops know to be true. Where there's an enormous amount of will, there's a mediocre way. And oh, was that band practice ever mediocre. For you see, Terry was a proud member of Idiot Nation, Green Day's very real fan club, and as such had written several power ballads about how the vague behemoth of corporate America just, you know, fucking sucks, mom and dad. For several months, Jim had followed around Animal Collective, and so you know he preferred that. Rhonda owned that shirt that said, I only listen to the mountain goats, which was true for the most part, and so she was genuinely astonished at the lack of ultra-specificity and non-loneliness in Terry's songs. And Bridget would be the first to tell you that her taste in music sucks, that she likes Nickelback even though she realizes they're a hot garbage fire, but like a boring hot garbage fire, but she didn't really care. Well, that's what she said, but it became clear that she at least cared enough to stop in the middle of the song, Parents Don't Get It, Part 2 and ask aloud if this was all really worth it. I mean, Jesus Christ, this just seems like a fucking waste of time. Which she immediately regretted. And then everyone looked extremely uncomfortable. And then Terry laughed, and so everyone relaxed. Although there was a small part of Terry who was deeply hurt by the comment, and their friendship was never the same again. Eventually, with an appropriate dissonant thud, band practice ended. Terry pulled out a bottle of Prosecco and proposed a toast to Broomstick, or whatever they are going to call themselves, which the other three members took part in, you know, self-worth, and also alcohol. To Broomstick, or whatever, proclaimed Terry. Here, here, they all said, but Terry wasn't done. May we all die torturous, excruciating deaths at the hands of pit bulls with knives strapped to their claws, that are also on fire if we let this dream die. Hear, hear, they all said. So, that was cool. Jim, Rhonda, and Bridget left Jim's apartment that night hoping that the idea would die of natural causes and never be mentioned again which had about the same effect as the first time they had tried to will Broomstick, or whatever it was going to be called, out of existence. Which is to say that eventually a record deal arrived in the mail. Well, were Terry to look back on the whole experience and consider any regrets he might have, he would probably think about the decision to put Jim's apartment as the return address on the submission packet he sent off to Bathroom Carpet Records, LLC, and maybe think about it again. 
But as stated before, there exists no evidence that Terry looks back on anything. Ever. He only moves forward. Like a fucking champ. In any case, a package arrived at Jim's apartment addressed to Byron Byron and the Melanomas, care of Terry Carson, and contained within it a contract for a record deal. Well, not really a record deal so much as an opportunity for Jim, Terry, Bridget, and Rhonda to sell their identities and life rights to Bathroom Carpet Records, LLC, a subsidiary of Gilman's Pharmaceutical and Soft Goods Manufacturing, who was ultimately owned by Bergman's Meat and Meat-Like Substances Transportation Service, Incorporated. Once sold, Bathroom Carpet Records LLC would be able to do with their identities as it pleased. According to court documents obtained by bribing the court clerk with a shopping bag full of cans of Frito brand hot bean dip with jalapeno peppers, Bathroom Carpet was really only interested in acquiring the identities of Jim, Bridget, and Rhonda. Its leadership found Terry to be, quote, off-putting and dysfunctional, and inconsistent with the Bathroom Carpet slash Bergman's brand. Bergman's is a family company, stated CEO Willard Bergman, and that Terrence fellow, well, let's just say he's not a family. Terry had been the one to reach out, and so they threw the purchase of his life rights in as well, you know, out of respect. And so it was Jim who called Terry that night and asked him, Terry, what the fuck? It wasn't really a question. And it was Terry who called a band meeting for the next weekend to try and convince Jim, Rhonda, and Bridget to sell. And they came, although they had mutually decided, in another meeting that Terry had not been invited to, that they would endeavor to care less about Terry's waning self-worth. Well, it had been waning. Lately, however, he seemed to be brimming with the stuff, which was fucking infuriating when it came down to it, and an altogether excellent reason to straight-up care less. At first, Terry knew that they were joking. Like Bridget had been joking. This was their shot, after all, and if there was one thing he had learned from Lin-Manuel Miranda, it was that there's no such thing as being too enthusiastic. Well, there is. But anyway. After all, said Terry, the first deal a band is offered is often not ideal, but you take your lumps, you pay your dues, and eventually you become the offspring. Didn't they want to be the offspring? Terry. Nobody wants to be the offspring. Terry, who was already naturally predisposed to being oblivious to most social cues and subtlety, found himself in a situation that felt foreign. Specifically, for the first time in his life, that he could remember anyway, he was having to actively ignore social cues that he was suddenly very aware of. Because Jim, Bridget, and Rhonda were sending some pretty strong ones. Well, one. And that one was the word, no. Bridget tried to explain to Terry that she believed that personal identity was far too special to sell for any amount of money, that much like our DNA or fingerprint or Wu-Tang Clan name from that name generator, it's something that makes each and every one of us special. She hoped that Terry would understand. But Terry didn't understand and continued to not understand until the meeting ended with Jim screaming at Terry that they weren't going to fucking sign because they didn't want to. But also they weren't even a band, and so what the fuck was this whole thing about in the first place? 
Many angsty young men perceive the world as a cold and cruel place because it occasionally asks us to make decisions that are difficult. And oh did Terry have a moderately difficult one to make. On the one hand, becoming a rock god had always been one of his dreams, along with visiting Frederick, Maryland, and he had always known that, if given the chance, dreams are there to be jumped at. But in those several minutes after Jim, Bridget, and Rhonda left Jim's apartment, which, you know, Jim should have just told him to leave, right? He also thought about how much he enjoyed the company of Jim, Bridget, and Rhonda, and how it would surely destroy their friendship if he proceeded any further. The world is a cold and cruel place, after all, and it sucks being lonely. But then he began to wonder if he actually did enjoy their company, or if he was just mistaking joy with comfort. Fuck em, said the microwave in Jim's kitchen. And Terry agreed. Yeah, fuck em. It was close to 11.30 p.m. when the bus pulled up outside the Greyhound bus terminal on Station Street in Vancouver. Terry happily jumped down the steps of the bus, his foot catching on the last step so that his head swung around and smashed into the curb, rendering his face somewhat broken and his brain very unconscious. He woke up on the expo line the next morning, and it took him a few minutes to remember where he was, who he was, and what he was doing. Terry, Montreal, bathroom carpet, he stated forcefully. Well, so two out of three. Several sleepy commuters jumped. They were trying to be polite Canadians, as was their nature, but it was still too early for this fucking shit. The Bergman Building in downtown Vancouver is hard to navigate as, for reasons unknown, every floor has been built on an incline. This design quirk, as city tour guides refer to it, has made the placement and demarcation of both stairwells and elevators nearly impossible, as each floor is in effect a ramp that goes up by more than 16 feet. The building's layout is very confusing and difficult to explain. So imagine if you had to try and find someone in it. But perhaps that was Robert E. Lee Bergman's intention. And Terry was trying to find someone, and instead eventually found the receptionist for Huel Yuleman's Yuletide Logs, another Bergman property, who in an understandably hungover manner told Terry to just stay there and someone from Bathroom Carpet Records LLC would try and come to meet him. The receptionist overemphasized the word try, but Terry ignored him. And he repeated his new mantra, Tony Robbins, Tony Robbins, Pete Holmes, Tony Robbins. About an hour later, someone did show up and said person handed Terry a sealed envelope while also doing a great job of not making eye contact with anyone. Terry was confused, but before he was able to articulate his confusion, the someone had left. Terry wasn't positive, but he was pretty sure that that someone wasn't the person he had traveled to Vancouver to see. He attempted to find clarity with Huel Yuleman's receptionist, but the receptionist was asleep, and, you know, at that point, what are you really going to do? Well, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to open the envelope, which is what Terry did. Dear Mr. Terry, May we call you Terry? 
We wish to start off by thanking you for your interest in Bathroom Carpet Records, LLC. We have had a great time getting to know you and your band members. We here at BCR feel that it's important to like the people you are in business with, and unfortunately, while your band members seem like pleasant, nice people, it remains a complete mystery to all of us here as to why anyone would like you. To be honest, you seem like kind of a dick. We would wish you luck in your future endeavors, but as you're not someone we find remotely pleasant or interesting, we won't. Goodbye, Terry. Sincerely, Management. Terry returned to Brooklyn and for the first time in his life understood why Greyhound exists. After all, one wouldn't take a hour bus trip to get the Presidential Medal of Freedom, would they? It was a Monday night in Picklet's Hole. Jim, Bridget, and Rhonda were all racking up their bar tabs taking superfluous shots of fireball whiskey when Terry walked in and sat down next to them. He did not say anything and neither did they. Terry found himself trying to figure out what it was they were thinking. Rhonda slid a shot towards Terry. It caught on the uneven top of the bar, and half of it spilled out. Fuck you, Terry, said Rhonda, laughing. And so they drank. And Terry drank a lot. At the end of the night, as they were saying goodbyes, Jim pulled Terry aside and apologized for his past behavior, what he had said, and any other odious thing he may have done. You've... you've got a dream, he said. And you should chase that, uh, dream. You know, if you want to. I'll see you tomorrow. But he didn't see Terry the next day, or the next week. In fact, no one saw Terry again. This reporter would like to believe that he is off living a rock and roll lifestyle somewhere else, living the dream, but all he really wanted to hear was that things were okay, even if they really weren't. But let's face it, he's probably dead, or drunk, or both. He is a poet, after all, and if you're 25 years old and are awake and alone at 3.45 a.m. on a Saturday morning, sifting through your own thoughts, then, well... You turn on Byron Byron and the melanomas, and you feel sad, and it feels good. Bug Spray is written, directed, and produced by Scott Gooden with music by B. Norman Clager. Special thanks to Norris Gunshin and to Fred Bach for telling me that the word angst doesn't go far enough. This is, of course, a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Or possibly both. Visit bugspraypod.com for more information and subscribe to Bugspray on iTunes.